Welcome to The Riff, where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. Hey, Bern, I want to start with a topic we've covered before, but you have a new take on it. Fertility. Why, why did you uh, discuss fertility this week in Long Rates? Yeah, so um, Tyler Cowen actually posted this really good um, chapter from, uh, I think it's an economic textbook on many topics, but there was a chapter on fertility. And um, it was it was a, a fun piece because some of it is talking about these general models of why do people choose to have kids? When do they choose to have kids? And what are the forces, you know, pushing in different directions? Um, but it also, it talked about how some of the general assumptions we have have actually been um, getting more obsolete over time. So one of them was that um, there has been since the late 80s, a slightly positive correlation between GDP and fertility. So richer countries do actually have more kids um, or countries that are getting richer have more kids. Um, that was interesting. There's also, um, if you plot um, women's educational outcomes versus fertility, it used to be this pretty linear decline. You know, high school dropouts have the most kids, and people with people who went to graduate school have the, the fewest. But now it actually inverts after college. So um, women who went to grad school actually have slightly more kids on average than women who went to college. So it was it was good to get that kind of general corrective. And it the the piece also talks about some of these general models of fertility and, um, and, and what it really illustrates is that it's, it's really hard to talk about the economics of fertility just because you have these very strongly opposing forces where pretty much anything that means that you can afford to have more kids also raises the opportunity cost of your time. So you just, you don't get better at, you know, reading bedtime books or doing bath time or playing catch in the yard or whatever. Like you, you, your utility from that does not go up as fast as your utility from other things. So, um, you know, if we can afford more kids, but we can also afford more vacations. Um, does that actually mean we end up having fewer kids to be, to be substitute out? Um, annoyingly, the, the, the econ term for that would be that children are an inferior good in the sense of when you have more money, you substitute them with something else. Um, Econ is always full of these things that sound incredibly judgmental, but are just terms of art that are, you know, less, I think, less evocative when you use them to describe pork bellies or something. Um, but it, it was, it was just an interesting piece. And then part of what I was thinking about here was like, okay, why, you know, it, it, in some ways it is kind of tacky or gross to talk about the economics of such a personal decision. On the other hand, economics is really broadly the study of how we get what we want. And, um, so in one sense, you could say, well, kids are just this this additional category of consumption slash investment, and we're allocating capital among all these opportunities. And so, you know, in some sense, society is always deciding, should the marginal dollar go to a chip fab in Arizona, or should it go to the, you know, the creation of a baby? And, um, you know, we're always asking these questions. But at another level, um, the economics of fertility ends up being the most important question you can ask in economics, because... It, it determines the we. Like when I, when we say that economics is the study of how we satisfy our unlimited wants with our limited means, um, who that we is, is entirely determined by who has kids and whether or not people who want to have kids can actually afford to. So it ends up being this really fundamental question about just who is going to exist to enjoy all of this nice stuff. Like it's not just that they are, they are labor and there's also capital, but it's like, they are, they are the the observer. They're like the 
the the the point of all of this activity like you know eventually i will presumably be dead at some point and the world will go on existing hopefully hopefully it's not like i'm dead and that's also the end of the world um either from like the the philosophical sense or from just uh you know we all die in a very horrible way um but what that means is that what what gets left behind after my lifetime is you know what i've done but also kids and so it's a it's a really important question so i think that um, I mean, we should, we should be thinking about that because there are, I think thinking about the economics of fertility means, um, just considering, considering the trade-offs in a lot of policies where if you, if you are indifferent to the question of does this make it easier or harder for people who want to have kids to have kids, um, naturally, if you just don't consider that criterion, you end up selecting for policies that make it harder to have kids. And you can look at, um, you can look at some some aspects of monetary and fiscal policy as being somewhat antinatalist. Like if if the economy is slowing down and the way you bail us out of that problem is by cutting interest rates, then what you've done is you've increased the value of all capital assets, you know, all all fixed assets that have some long lifespan. And one of the biggest categories of those is houses. And people do tend to um, either have kids once they've bought a house or have kids once they know they can afford a house. And so you are pricing some people out of having kids, which means you're pricing other hypothetical people out of existence entirely. So I think one takeaway is like we should lean more on fiscal than monetary policy to keep the economy stable to the extent that that's what we intend to do. And then even within fiscal policy, there is a question of what you subsidize and whether you're implicitly subsidizing one family structure over another. And um, family structure does does matter a lot for for having kids. Like if if the if the default family structure is like it's this completely equal partnership where everything is divided down the middle, then you know anything that increases labor income is good. But if you if you want to design a policy around the idea that one like fairly common slash default system is that there is one primary earner and one secondary earner or even one person who doesn't actually do like doesn't have wage income um you you do want a somewhat different different set of tax policies and you don't want to treat those incomes as equivalent like one simplistic way to think about this um which gets you pretty far is you think about decisions being made on the household level rather than the individual level so you you think like there will be distributional issues within that, but they are sort of distributional issues that every family has to talk about and figure out on their own. They're not really issues. They're like, it's it's weird to have, you know, a state level approach to whose job is it to take out the garbage. They think that's uh that that's usually something that you can you can work out a little bit closer to home. In fact, you know, at home. So um yeah, I think I think it's a fascinating topic. I think it it always um well, it often riles people up. Although I've I've always been pleasantly surprised that I can I can touch on and allude to some controversial stuff in the newsletter, and um, it doesn't freak people out. I've always been um, pleasantly surprised about that. I think some of it is just email is um, it's a different kind of viral than Twitter. So with email, like I almost never get an email, either a newsletter or just a direct email. Like I I I don't get emails and then feel like I need to just publicly dunk on this person. It's like it would be a weird thing to do. Because like if you get the email, you signed up for it. Like you're dunking on yourself if you think this is a dumb newsletter. So you can just opt out. I think a lot of people just opt out of opt out of the newsletters that that say things that annoy them. So, um, but if you if you do say something controversial, you do sometimes get replies and people will debate and discuss. But 
for whatever reason, when you're when you're replying in your inbox rather than on Twitter, you're just in this different mode where you actually want to read things, understand them, figure out what common ground you have with this person, what is the underlying nature of the dispute you have with them, and what could you figure out that would get both of you closer to understanding one another and potentially even agreeing. So um, I think email email dialogue just tends to be a lot more constructive, at least in cases like this. So I I think it's a it's a strength of the medium. Yeah. I, uh, well, podcast too. I had, uh, Curtis Yarvin and Richard Hanani on my other podcasts and no one complained. And with that in mind, the, um, I, th- I think the thing that's even more controversial around sort of the natalist conversation is that it often, um, implies certain things on, on, on women in the sense of, or certain, you know, women, um, in order to have more kids, you know, that sometimes that the, the, uh, you know, the cost of certain career advancement. And that's a very touchy, uh, conversation. Um, is it because of all the the great work, uh, you know, society has done to enable women to, to have that choice, um, or or many women, at least is the right way of thinking about it from a purely economics, um, perspective, sort of the, um, the trade-off between current and future GDP in the sense that if, if we told, you know, uh, said, Hey, m- more women, and of course more men could do this too, be, be stay at home dads. But in this case, if we're talking about more women should focus on, on having kids, that means le- less women, um, you know, crushing it in the workforce, which means, uh, l- less GDP. Is that the right way of thinking about it? But at the same time, if we have less kids, that's less future GDP, or is that too crude? Yeah, I think, I think that is a bit too crude. Like the point you know, the point of having an economy and a society is not that we're going to pick a number and just make the number go up. Like, I'm sure if that were the goal, we could find lots of really effective ways to make number go up. Um, it is, it is about creating a system that allows people to pursue, like pursue their goals in ways that are socially constructive and that don't harm other people. And that allows them to, um, to do the things that they are actually good at and to, you know, cultivate, cultivate excellence along multiple axes. So, um, yeah, when you, when you get into the details, you, you end up, it, it ends up opening a bunch of other questions because you have, um, now, like if you are bringing it down by gender rules, then you have the question of how much of that is socially constructed, how much of that is, you know, more fundamental than that. If it's socially constructed, can you actually deconstruct it and reconstruct it? Or like what are what are your odds that you actually get a better outcome there versus the worst outcome there? Um, there is like the the old, old critique of a lot of this stuff that it is actually just putting everything on this hyper male rubric of like we're going to make a list of all of the important things in life. And they happen to be things that men are, that have been historically male dominated. So like, you should be good at business. You should be really good at sports. You should get elected. You should like rule over people and crush your enemies and things. And then, you know, if you say like, those are the highest values, you're sort of saying like, my, my notion of gender equity is that men, like all the things that men have typically historically done are actually the important things for humans to do. And that, Every, every domain of specialization for women is just fundamentally unimportant. And, you know, that's a, I guess that's a call you can make. And I like, it's, it's totally coherent to say that yes, society like patriarchy exists and society has been organized so that only men are allowed to do all of the important and cool and worthwhile things. And women have been relegated to unimportant things like, you know, taking care of children and stuff like that. Um, I just, I, I don't actually like I don't feel like when I go home from work that I'm switching from doing the important cool stuff to doing this completely like low status pointless stuff. I I think that they are just they are different domains that have 
um, like somewhat incommensurable values. Like you do, they have to be somewhat commensurable in the sense that um, I, I'm not going to just quit working and spend literally all of my time with my kids, but they're, they're not directly um, measurable along the same axis. So when I think about these things, I, I try just to um, somewhat sidestep the, the gendering piece of the debate, you know, in part, just there's, I, I try to retain the epistemic humility that um, I am a man. And so I don't actually, um, you know, I, I am not an excellent judge of gender differences because I've only seen things, things from one perspective. And I'm certainly not a good judge of what is socially constructive, what is, you know, what's nature, what's nurture, and how changeable those things are. Because again, my sample size is small and my sample size is going to be biased because your nature and nurture are also going to correlate really strongly. So you can, you can definitely fool yourself into having a model that strongly skews to one side or the other just because you choose which, which selection effects to care about. You choose which things to control for, which things not to control for. You get, you get whatever outcome you want. Um, so, but I also think like if you, if you make policy in a, you know, superficially gender neutral way and you say we should design a, we should have a tax structure that recognizes the fact that you can have, like, if you have a household with one main earner and then one person who earns less or does not work at a job outside the home, um, and that that should actually, like, that structure should actually be encouraged because it produces more kids. And if you, if you run your discounted cash flow analysis or you just look at the size of Medicare liabilities, you're like, we actually have a, a pretty serious shortage of future kids and need to do something about it. Like, if you set that up, it is, it is extremely obvious to me that in 21st century America and Western Europe, you were still going to have a system where overwhelmingly the main earner is a man and not a woman in a, in a heterosexual monogamous marriage. So we're, we're stipulating that part for now. Um, so like I'm, I'm under no illusion that if you have a, a gender neutral policy that also tries to make things better for single earner households, it is going to mostly mean that it's male single earner households. But it's also like, there's no reason to have a policy like that for those, those policy reasons. And then to say, and by the way, we are, we're also going to insist that um, stay at home dads are just anathema and that working moms are also just awful. And we can't, we can't tolerate that. Like there's no, there's no point in stipulating that additionally, you know, you're, your nature or nurture does the work for you anyway. And, um, and it also means that people can configure their lives and their households in the way that makes sense to them. And one of the really nice things it means is that you can actually have things shift around. So you can have a case where, for example, your, your main earner for a while is, is dad and mom is at home with the kids. And then at some point, mom is um, back in the workforce and dad is home with the kids, or you have people shift around because one of them is going back to school or one of them is writing a novel or something else. Like you can have, you can have lots of, um, lots of different arrangements, not just between different households, but within the same household over time. So I think, I think embedding a lot of that flexibility into things is good, but I think that just starting with the premise that people tend to have fewer kids than they wanted to have. Like when they, when they die, they usually die undershooting their desired child count. Um, so 
acknowledging that, acknowledging that there are gains from trade through specialization, acknowledging that marriage is a really good way to reduce the transaction costs of getting those gains from trade, and acknowledging that, yeah, there is there is definitely a cost to demographic collapse. There is definitely a cost to having a really high, um, high old age dependency ratio. And that we should try to mitigate those costs. And that's a, that's an expensive, slow moving, but necessary proposition. Like you, you just, you need to acknowledge all of that when coming up with policy. So I, I tend to lean towards a uh, very large child tax credit. Um, I, I kind of, I go back and forth on this idea of, um, how much should it be tied to income? And I think there's like, there's kind of this trollish argument you can make where if you, if you tie it to income and you say like we are going to subsidize you know mid six figure earners a lot more when they have kids, like at one level you are massively redistributing wealth to mid six figure earners. But if you have the view that most of the um, most of the decline in intergenerational social mobility is because the parents of rich kids can invest a lot in their kids' outcomes and so the kids get ahead. Well, if you if you subsidize them having more kids, you're sort of tricking them into splitting their resources among more children. And you know, the resource like rich people have resources, but those resources are also finite. And so if they if they have more kids, they can't you can reach the point where they can't buy a building at every Ivy League school for every kid. So they have to they have to accept that some of their kids are going to not not the elitist of the elite schools. Um and then, yeah, so like from that perspective, it's just um, it is a way to basically split up large fortunes into smaller fortunes. And the U.S. doesn't really have any kind of um, strong, you know, primogeniture kind of tradition where the the eldest child or eldest male child is going to inherit almost everything from their parents. And everyone else is just sort of an afterthought. And, you know, maybe maybe they should pursue the priesthood or move to a different country and make their fortune there. No, like we. We tend to have a pretty equitable situation where the the default assumption is that parental wealth and attention gets split pretty evenly among the kids. And if it doesn't, it's more for logistical reasons. Like it's a lot easier to pay attention to the first kid who's an only child and a lot harder to pay attention to the N minus last, like the, the N minus first kid. So the last kid will also get a ton of attention because the parents miss all the other kids being babies. And so that child they know is like their last shot at having a child of this age in their home until they have grandkids. So they tend to dole out a lot of attention. But yeah, the middle kids, you you would expect them to get slightly less attention from parents on average, just given the given the real resource constraint of if there are more kids who want attention and you still have the same number of parents with the same amount of free time, they gets they get split more um more than otherwise would. If there are any women who listen to the riff, do uh, do write in and reach out and let, let us know. Uh, let, let us know what you think. Hey, everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. The tech world turns to the Brave browser for its unbeatable privacy protections. But did you know that Brave also has a private ad platform? Brave Ads offers first-party targeting, and it's been cookie-less since day one, so you can relax while third-party tracking cookies disappear from the web. Today, millions of people turn to ad blockers to avoid being tracked and pestered online. But Brave's new ad model aligns incentives for users and advertisers. Users earn rewards for viewing ads, which they can save, spend, or pass along to their favorite creators. And advertisers score points for respecting user privacy, generating ROI without invasive tracking. So whether it's high-impact announcements on the new tab page or keyword-targeted ads in Brave Search, Brave offers diverse, private, future-proof ad formats for all your business goals. 
Join the future of advertising at brave.com slash ads. Mention MOZ when signing up for a 25% discount on your first campaign. Yeah, it is interesting, just more broadly, like if if we were totally dedicated to advancing AGI, we know what we would do. We would go work at OpenAI or, or, or start some, some competitor. If we were dedicated to solving um, sort of this, the fertility crisis or solving, you know, population demographics, it's not necessarily clear w- what we would do or focus on. So I, I think the tech instinct is, and it's true in tech, is that you, if you find a problem that is worth solving, that nobody has solved yet, that if you solve that problem for a subset of people, you make them very happy. And then you find an adjacent subset of people who have a very similar problem where you can tweak your solution and make it a good solution for them. You just keep doing that and then you end up dominating, you know, the market. So like Facebook starts out as, well, who's that, you know, who, who was that person who sat next to me in art history class? And I'd like to, you know, I'd like to know if I have any other classes with her and I'd like to maybe hang out with her and, and message her or something. And so, you know, you solve that problem for a set of undergrads. And then 20 years later, you are in the business of just connecting humans across, you know, across like connecting billions of people across the world. Um, so you, you solve it by increments. Now that, that works pretty well in tech. Um, it works less well in slower moving and more capital intensive industries. So there's just not, there's not like a similar way that you would solve the problem of air travel of like, I think people, you know, I think people should fly more. You can, you can start an airline. It's expensive and probably won't work out, but you can start an airline and you can say, I think that flights between these two cities should be cheaper. And you can actually, you know, Again, with effort and having raised a lot of money from very generous backers who are probably not going to do very well from backing you, you can you can solve that problem a little bit. But a lot of these these social issues, like I think I think the right place to look at is just like can can I personally contribute to this? And there are definitely peer effects within within pregnancy. I think I think like this gets studied more in the context of teen pregnancy, where it does seem to go through epidemics, you know, and that, that's that's not ideal. But there there are some peer effects with with older people where if if someone if there's a cohort of people and you'd expect them to start having kids at 30 and then one person in that cohort has kids at like 27. So it's like it's young, but it's not crazy irresponsibly. Like someone must have made a catastrophic mistake here young. Um, you can slightly, slightly increase the fertility of that peer group. Um, I think there's also, there's like the, the sort of Ponzi scheme dynamic where my kids will, uh, they will make more money babysitting in a few years if the, if their existence causes other people we know to have more kids. So, um, so there, there's probably some, some leverage there. And, um, you know, kids are, kids are fun and just like it's genuinely interesting to watch them grow up and to relive bits of your childhood and to see which aspects of your personality they are just carbon copies of and which aspects of your personality they're weird inversions of and try to figure out is that reactive or am i actually living out this weird inversion of my true instincts or is there some kind of um generational cycle where every generation inverts the previous one, you know, the, the way that a lot of the, the children of hippies end up really right wing. And then the children of really right wing people end up being hippies. So there can be just these cycles and it's, it's fun to fun to speculate on that stuff. But I do think like thinking about these really broad scalable, you know, could SoftBank put $10 billion into this problem, thinking of those solutions for 
extremely personal questions is actually really hard. Um, and even, even to the point of like, it is, um, because you don't know what the specific reason someone might have for, for not having kids, like even, even the retail level of talking to people and being like, Hey, I think you should have more kids. Um, that itself is pretty fraught, but I think demonstrating that you can have kids and lead a, lead a normal fun life. Um, you know, you're having kids means you, you can't spend nearly as many of your Saturday mornings just getting high and playing video games. But also was that really what you were put on this earth to do in the first place? Probably not. So, um, there are definitely sacrifices. I, I think the sacrifices are worth it. And my guess is that on the margin, on the margin, you know, setting an example and, or not, not like setting an example, you know, in the, in the kind of pedantic sense, but like trying it out, seeing that it works fine, probably nudges other people in that direction. It's probably the most impact that any one person should expect to have. And it is, you know, for the, for the people who come into existence because of that, it's an extremely big impact. Um, I also think there's, you know, treating, treating having kids as a political act is also really weird. Like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not like a conversation you want to have with your kids of like, I, I think you're very, very special and I score lots of points because you exist. Like that's, that's not good. That's, uh, that's not very Kantian at the least. Um, but it's also, I think there, it is generally good to have some consonance between your, your ideological beliefs and the lifestyle that you live. Um, you know, people bring this up a lot with what I think are actually fairly cheap shots about taking a private jet to a climate conference. Like it's, you know, if, if someone has a reason to be at that climate conference and they are actually going to get anything accomplished there, it's almost certain that whatever they accomplish there has a larger impact than whatever flight they took to get there. And that probably, realistically, someone who shows up well-rested because they got to skip the security line and were on a very relaxing flight versus someone who was crammed into, you know, brutal basic economy for for 12 hours on the plane to switzerland or, or dubai or whatever um probably they are actually more effective like it is probably a net carbon emissions reduction for people to fly private to climate conferences but it is also true that the more the more your life can actually be consonant with your basic beliefs the the happier you will be and also if you find that it's extremely hard to live out your beliefs like if you think that animal cruelty is the worst possible thing and that veganism is really healthy, you know, really, really healthy, but you're always craving bacon and, you know, you can't get enough of a uh, steak or whatever, then, then maybe there is some, some unexamined issue with that ideology that you should, you should think about that either you want, like you, it is, I think, totally legitimate to say that there are some moral standards that you can drop because that is, they are actually impossible to fully live up to. And they also don't have a ton of tradition behind them. And so they're probably just not actually compatible with human behavior and are maybe like a nice abstract ideal. And if you met an alien species that followed those rules, you would really respect them for how moral they are. But they're, it's actually not a kind, not the kind of thing that humans do and not the kind of thing that you should ask other humans to do if you can't do it yourself. Yeah. Well, well, well articulated. I, I want to segue into a, a, a different topic you, you wrote about this week, uh, a couple of tangential topics. So one is Walmart is a tool of upward mobility. Uh, and then separately, big companies with white collar workforces being deliberately vague about AI economics. Maybe we'll start with Walmart. Yeah, yeah. So the Walmart things, I read Sam Walton's Made in America book a long, long time ago and then reread it pretty recently. And one of the things that stuck with me both times was that he talks about one of the Walmart truckers being a millionaire from Walmart stock. And I think 
the first time I read that, I thought, this is awesome. This is capitalism. This is great. This is what America is all about. And then the next time I read it, you know, older, more cynical, I was like, well, this is probably, this person probably made some fairly irresponsible financial decision where they put all their money into the stock of their employer. And that worked out, but you know, the median truck driver who puts all their money to their employer's stock probably underperforms the market, may have their savings wiped out right when they lose their job because their employer went bankrupt. So probably a bad thing. But then um I was reading um Freight Waves, which is the the wonderful um logistics industry media empire. And um they were talking about how Walmart actually does pay their truckers substantially more than other truckers get paid, and that it's it's really a way for them to save on working capital because the Walmart system for a very long time has been that they want to absolutely ruthlessly minimize one, what they pay for inventory and two, how much time things sit on shelves, either in a store or in a warehouse before they actually get into the customer's hands. And the faster you can make that turnover go, the less capital you need to run your business. And you can, so I don't think Walmart's at this point. I think Costco is actually the point where their inventory turnover is so fast that when they, um, when they launch a new store, like the average contribution, the average contribution to their capital needs for their new store is they do need to invest. I think it's like 30 to 50 million in, you know, the real estate and the, the fixed, like fixed stuff, but they actually get money back from their, from their inventory. So the, the cost, the capital cost of holding inventory for them is negative because they turn over their inventory faster than a 30 day billing cycle. So by the time they have paid their suppliers for that inventory, they have already sold it. They already have the cash from customers. So um, that that can be a really, really powerful model because it means you just don't need as much capital to grow. And Walmart grew for a really long time out of retained earnings because they were able to reduce the amount of working capital they needed on the books. And that meant that more of their capital was going to its its highest productivity use. So that's that's on trucking. And I also think, you know, at one level, it's like you, um, you know, if you choose to work for a particular company, you can you can live a little and like double down a little bit on it. Like you shouldn't put literally all of your money into your employer. But I think it's reasonable to align incentives, especially if you, you know, you've worked as a trucker for a while, you've worked for various companies, and then Walmart is just a cut above the rest in terms of how hard it is to get the job. And then they're a cut above the rest in terms of how efficient they are and how efficiently they want to run things. Like it could be that this trucker actually had this moment of enlightenment where he's like, this is actually how to run a business. And I, I had been working for hobbyists who were just like nine to five showing it at the office, you know, pretending to run a company, but Walmart is actually serious about making as much money as humanly possible, also making their products incredibly cheap. So, so maybe that trucker, trucker actually just had this brilliant investing insight and, um, they coupled that with, um, actually making good money for trucking and um it seemed to work out well and then um soon after that freight waves piece on walmart and trucking came out there was another one that came out um in the wall street journal about walmart store managers and how they can earn up to 400k but most of that like the up to is doing a lot of work there because they have very heavy incentive-based compensation so their their base is low six figures they get stock and then they get um, up to a 200% bonus based on store performance. And Walmart does try to promote people. They don't just do this, but they try to promote people from within the store. And what I realized about the, the store managers is that they will be the most senior person at Walmart who is constantly spending their time looking directly at specific problems at the store. Like they are they're walking the aisles. They are talking to the, the associates. They're also talking to the customers. Like, if there is something wrong with how Walmart operates, 
those store managers are the first people to know, which means they are the ones who perform this incredibly important information transmission function of sending those insights, whether it's something like we just, we don't clean the bathrooms quite often enough, or like we're always running out of this product, or, you know, I tried this promotion that it actually worked really well. So we should try it elsewhere. Like they're the ones who are actually collecting that information, getting that information firsthand, but they are also management and they're, they're reporting up to other management. So that's, that's the point at which an idea, an observation about the business can actually start percolating upward. I think the other reason that they get a lot of incentive compensation is when you have a really low margin business, it also means that every basis point of costs really, really matters. And every basis point of incremental sales really, really matters. And so the people who can nudge that even slightly, who can figure out, you know, some, some slightly more efficient way to run some part of the store, some slightly better way to deal with shrinkage or who can come up with some very minor rearrangement of the store layout that slightly increases the, the attach rate on some product. Like they, the, you know, doing, if you add, I don't know, 10 basis points to the store sales, so 0.1%, um, you, you might add like three times that much, five times that much to their, um, as a percentage change in their profits. So it, it becomes a pretty big deal that, that they can do that. And it makes a lot of sense for Walmart to pay these people very, very well. So I, I think that it's, it's nice because there's, it used to be much more common for someone to be able to get into a business on the ground floor and work their way up. Like at one point, the CEO of Goldman Sachs had started out as, um, not, not even a janitor, but actually an assistant to the janitor. Um, his, his job seeking habit, I think this was like 1910s that he just went into the, the tallest buildings on Wall Street and would just take the elevator to the top floor and then go door to door asking who's hiring. Um, so he, he started out with the, the lowest possible job, like literally emptying the spittoons of other employees at, uh, at Goldman and then worked his way up. That just, that doesn't happen anymore. Like I don't, you know, if there is someone who is a former janitor at a, and is now the CEO of Fortune 500 company, maybe it was a summer job. Maybe it was like some, you know, weird one-off thing, but it's, it's really, there isn't as much of a linear path as there used to be, but within Walmart, at least they do seem to want to have this path where if you, you finish high school, you get your first job at Walmart 20 years later, you could be running a Walmart. You could be making mid six figures and you know, you could like, if you're making mid six figures, you've absolutely earned it. Like you've, you've worked very hard in a very challenging industry at a company that likes to challenge people. And, um, and that, that is, um, you know, hopefully an example of the system working. I'm just thinking here, we have nine minutes. So we go yeah, deeper on the white collar workflow. Oh yeah, the white collar thing. Yeah, so that was on. I think it was um, WPP that was talking about AI, and um, they just uh, when they were talking to investors, they just didn't want to say that they think that AI is going to save them a ton of costs. They also didn't really want to say it's going to add a ton of revenue. They just they wanted to keep things pretty pretty open and vague. And I think it's it's very reasonable for someone who has a job in the information processing business, um, which is you know, most white collar workers, like you don't want to be constantly thinking that there is this much cheaper replacement for you. It's constantly getting better. And at some point it's going to replace you. That's just a very depressing thought. Um, a very exciting thought is there is this compliment to what you're doing. It automates all the boring stuff. It can't do any of the interesting stuff. And so it'll actually make you fantastically productive and your employer will be making so much more money that they will just not even bother to negotiate if you want to raise. Um, so that's, that's a very happy outcome. And 
it may be that they they want to have some level of on like that one level they're just uncertain about how to apply AI, where it will work, where it will fail, and um, what the cost will be. But also, they they might like that there is this wider spread in what workers are thinking because you'll have some people who are going to voluntarily attrition out because they just feel like they don't really have a great future in this business. Um, and those are probably not the people who are trying to incorporate Chat GPT into their workflows or using perplexity instead of Google. Um, they're they're probably not that, but then if you have another set of people who view AI as this potential source of upside and have kind of the 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 assumption that if their employer isn't making more money than from AI, that it's um, it's a sign that they need to work somewhere else. Like those people are probably going to start creating their own efficiencies within the company. They'll probably start coming up with ideas. They will be sort of Walmart store manager style idea generators who are very close to the actual problems that the business solves, but are at a, at a, at a level in their career where they can make these more meta contributions of not just, I'm going to do things the way they're supposed to be done, but I'm going to execute the checklist slightly more efficiently than everybody else. But it's more like, no, I can actually adjust this checklist and I can, I can turn some things from hard requirements for human effort into 99% of the time you make an API call and then you make another API call to check the results of your first API call. And then 1% of the time you you see there's something off and you actually manually investigate. Separately, you wrote about AI as the last interface. Why don't you talk briefly about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I think interfaces are are really interesting. Um, they're they're interesting in part because they are they are so invisible. Like I, I didn't consciously think of myself as a person who was moving mostly to browser-based applications, but I just know that over time, more and more of my computer time is actually spent in Chrome. And it's not just passively reading, it's like actually actually using applications that happen to exist in the browser as their default interaction mode. Um, AI has, has this interesting effect where it allows you to be interface agnostic in many ways. Um, it allows you to be kind of content style agnostic where someone can consume this as a podcast or as a, a video vlog or whatever. They can also generate a transcript and just read the transcript. Um, and that similarly, you can convert written content into an audiobook or a podcast if you want to. So you can sort of be indifferent to what the original form was. Um, that also extends to language. You can just consume it in whatever medium is, is best for you. And that also applies to the interactions. And weirdly, Apple was the pioneer here with Siri, where they want you to have, they want you to be just surrounded by this nimbus of Apple devices that are all constantly synced with one another such that you are seamlessly moving from, you text someone, they reply, you send them an emoji on your Apple Watch, they reply with something else, you write a long reply on iMessage on your MacBook, and then, you know, you you tell Siri, like, remind, you know, add this, add this thing to my calendar, whatever. So you can be, you can be somewhat interface agnostic within the Apple ecosystem. And um, I think that that presents, like, you can, you can think of these different breakdowns of how, how we will be interacting with AI and where the value will be created, where one view is AI companies should build APIs that other people build consumer-facing front-ends for. So that's sort of the, the open AI model where ChatGPT is this weird aberration where it was actually one of the most successful consumer-facing products of all time, but it was also sort of a demo. Like um, this is also roughly what happened with Yandex where they wanted to sell enterprise search. So they created a search engine in Russian to show that they can search Russian language text and then the search engine became their main business. Um, so that's, that's one version. One version is that you have the, the Apple model where 
There is one company that gives you AI interfaces for everything that you would do not in a non-AI way. This is also partly Google's model. And then the another model is AI is like a separate device. It's always on. It's like a separate device or separate app. It's always on. It's always listening. And you're always dipping into AI to interact with other stuff that you're doing. So this could be like you're wearing the pin and you talk to the pin and it talks back to you. And so it's an all audio interface. It could be something like Rewind where it's just reading everything on your screen and you can ask Rewind, hey, what was that? What was that really interesting article that I read about Japan in the 1950s? And it immediately pulls it up for you and you can read it again. Um, so that is that's a model where AI is always there, but it's all it's in the background by default. And um, for that model to really work, though, you need to be able to access the same AI tool on every device in every possible medium. Because ultimately, what will happen as the um, as the data, like public, as building models and publicly available data gets commoditized, the part that is harder to commoditize is the proprietary data, especially the feedback loops, where you interact with an AI tool, you get a result, that result is either good or bad, and the fact that you said it was good or you said it was bad is training data that feeds into the next generation of the model or that feeds into the context of that AI interaction you're having. And so I think the companies that um, that ultimately win there are just the companies that have a bigger surface area for collecting lots of proprietary data. And um, Microsoft is in the definitely in the running there because they have such great distribution to large companies and they've been um, selling their co-pilot tool and um, it seems to be doing well. I've heard mixed reviews, but apparently the the numbers from their last earnings call or, you know, the, the numbers and qualitative commentary were, were pretty positive. So um, they seem to be doing well on that. Um, Apple has this ubiquitous distribution among tech people, but um, then they they just aren't as universal elsewhere. And then these these other tools, like, it's it's just hard to imagine that they will get the same kind of coverage that these fully integrated tools will get. Now, if if it turns out that it's actually the strength of the model rather than the customization that matters, then maybe the API model works better. And you know, you might you might be paying for like five different AI products that are all paying the same AI, the same underlying model provider for the API calls, and they're just um, you know they have they have different um, different prompts that they're using, and it's a different interface, different interaction model, but it's all talking to the same underlying model owned by the same company. You could have that, but I like thinking thinking this through. I ended up actually feeling more positive about Apple for their AI potential, and then um, more more uncertain about whether or not they will actually make that happen. Gearing towards closing here, uh, maybe last quick topic. I'll give you the choice: uh, Banana King or, or Venture Debt. All right, let's do Banana King. So um, I read this book called um, "The Fish That Swallowed the Whale," uh, "The Fish That Ate the Whale." The Life and Times of America's Banana King by Rich Cohen. It's fantastic. Highly recommend it. It is, um, there's, there's this kind of meta genre of history books where they are writing about one particular person, but that person was everywhere and was doing everything. And so every time there is some incident, it is an opportunity for the author to spend a couple paragraphs to a couple pages, giving you a sense of just the flavor of this particular time and place. So, um, one of my favorites in that genre is um, there's a book about Peter the Great, um, his life and world by Robert K. Massey. And it is just a really amazing portrait of different parts of the world in the 17th and 18th centuries. So it talks about Moscow as this um, kind of 
muddy wooden city that's full of churches that talks about the weirdness of the Turkish Sultan. It talks about the, the equal in magnitude, but very different in direction weirdness of, um, the Swedish King Charles, the you know, 10th or 12th, um, the, the weird absolutist one where he, uh, he had some kind of incident in his childhood where he got drunk and had, uh, all sorts of scandalous happenings and then swore off that forever and just became this very stern, very militant, very serious guy. Um, so like books that books about someone who got involved in a lot of different stuff in a lot of different places give historians and writers just a chance to write about a lot of interesting places. So um this book, it's um it's about a guy who um name was um Zemeray and Samuel Zemeray. Um, comes to America in the late 19th century. He's in the South and he discovers the banana when it was an exotic delicacy and has this adventure where he buys a shipment of bananas and then has to race to get them to customers before they spoil. And he does it and he makes money and he's just thrilled. And so he wants to keep on doing this and he creates this banana plantation empire. There's a separate banana plantation empire owned by United Fruit and they're very much old money Bostonian merchants. It's sort of the descendants of people who were smuggling opium in, in Asia and, um, getting involved in all sorts of dangerous shenanigans over there. Um, those people still existed. It sort of still had the same attitude of, you know, rights and freedoms and national and sovereignty are one thing, but shareholder value is a much more important thing. So, um, they, they tended to treat, you know, governments as sort of this optional thing where if you don't, it's sort of like if you, you know, you have a, a, a bad VP of sales and so you fire them, get a new VP of sales. That was, that was sort of their attitude to, towards heads of state in the countries in which they operated. Like this guy's not working out for us. Let's arm the moderate rebels and replace him with someone better. Um, so it is this wild swashbuckling adventure. By the end, it's pretty clear to everyone this system was actually in very, very badly broken in many ways and that it had managed to just permanently permanently warp and ruin U.S. and Central American relations in a way that um, has apparently taken generations to to repair. Um, but it is also just a story of extremely willful people who insist on accomplishing their goals. And that is, you know, when you're writing history books, um, writing about very moderate and reasonable people who step aside when it's tactful to do so and then retire quietly, that's that's often less fun than people who were just, you know, intense, abrasive, goal-oriented, stepped on a lot of other people to get their way, that that creates more conflict, it creates more drama, it creates more of a, a literary kind of aspect to the story. And the book is it it feels very literary. Like there are there are some wonderful turns of phrase. There are a lot of things that I highlighted because they were interesting. And there were a lot of things that I highlighted because it was just very well said. And I I liked the way the author put things. So um highly recommended as a as a business story, as a nonfiction novel, as um history of Central America and American relations from late nineteenth to mid twentieth centuries. It's it's all of the above. That's a it's a great place to uh to, to wrap. Uh burn another great episode uh, until next time. Already. This was fun. Later. Thanks for listening to the riff. Please go follow and subscribe, give us five stars, and check out Burns' excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 